Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for, the, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's word. All right. Adam, thank you. And I'll just add, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So I can imagine for some of you, if you heard the scripture reading there, you could be thinking several things. Some of you may have have said, uh, oh, we're going to talk about that. Um, Some of you may have have thought, I don't know what that means. And uh, and some of you may have thought, you know, actually, I have another appointment. Um, I've got to go. Because it's about the, uh, essentially about judgment day. Um, the day of the Lord, Judgment Day, and that brings up so many, um, so many feelings or just confusion. And so this evening, my prologue uh, to, to what I'm saying is like longer than ever because there's so much that needs to be unpacked around this concept uh, before we can really start to apply it. And so just so you know, long prologue. What are we doing here? We're, we're nearing the end here at Mission, of teaching through the latter parts of Paul's first letter to a city called Thessalonica. These were some of the earliest New Testament books um, that, that even predated some of the Gospels. And it was to a Greek-speaking trade city with a lot of new Christians. Uh, many of them had heard this idea that Jesus was going to return, and they didn't know how to respond to that. And, and maybe some of you feel the same way. A major theme of this book is Paul teaching them how to respond to that, uh, no matter what timeline or no matter what circumstances might have surrounded it. And and he he taught that by teaching that their lives should be lived with a motive of pleasing God that comes out of an overflow of understanding God's grace. That was the first principle he laid down. That's what we talked about week one. Your response to these questions should be, to live a life that's pleasing to God out of an overflow of understanding God's grace. Then uh, he teaches them, which we studied two two and three weeks ago, that um, despite the sense you could get, the knowledge that Jesus is coming back um, should not make you uh, go into a state of being maybe extra spiritual or detached. What it should lead you to do is to work Um, with normal kind of confidence and normal productivity and live a life before others that's just responsible and normal. 
That, that is what you should do. You should live a life that people would look at and say, well, that's a, that's a good and responsible life. Then as we discussed last week, um, there should be a lot of hope, especially in moments of grief when, when people have died. That people should grieve death, but that there should be a deep hope because Jesus' return means that resurrection is real and the ideals of justice and grace are harmonized. That God brings justice into this world, but there's, there's hope and grace. Um, and then he describes what we're reading here, the day of the Lord, which is partly describing Jesus coming back. For, for many of us in our, in our modern American mind, this is um, and must only be a future event, and it can sound kind of scary or unbelievable, but it's important to understand what it meant for a person like Paul, somebody who was a Hebrew, uh, to describe it. Um, and clearly, the people of Thessalonica, it mentions in our text that he said that he didn't need to teach them about this. So clearly, they had been taught about this and had an understanding about it that maybe we uh, don't have. And we need to be looped in a little bit as Paul had looped them in. So what is the day of the Lord? This concept goes all the way back. Here's a Bible survey for you. Adam and Eve were called to steward God's creation with loving care as a byproduct of their worship of God in the garden. It really parallels what we do at church. We come and we worship God, and then we're sent out into the world to steward over it with care. Okay? But there's a, a darkness in that garden, a tempter, a foreign evil voice that draws them to discern good and evil themselves, and they fall into a temptation to know and judge things for themselves as opposed to trusting God. And therefore, they are not able to be in the space of worship and communion with God because you cannot serve two masters. And God removes them from the garden. Partially, this is something they deserve, but it's, it's partially protecting them because they can't eat from the tree of, the life, uh, tree of life in this state um, because it would condemn them to eternal death. But this is the first day of the Lord. What do I mean by that? It's a day of judgment. There's a judgment that comes down upon them, and it's one that they suffer from. That, in, in, the, in the ideal of the Bible, is the first day of the Lord. Then humanity, outside of that worship space, continues to cascade to some degree. Cain kills Abel. Cities grow up on the backs of the weak until finally a city is built to glorify people. That's its, its purpose, and its name was Babel. And that, the name of that city, Babel, gets expanded out and becomes a theme throughout the Bible because there's another city later named Babylon that's in that same space and actually shares the same Hebrew name. And Babylon becomes not only a, you know, a place, but it becomes a theme. Other cities are described as Babylon. At some point later on in the Hebrew text, Israel itself is called Babylon, which is very confusing to them and very um, convicting to them. Basically, it's saying that Babylon theme, that, that a city built to glorify yourself, that's what you have become. So Babylon goes from being just a place to being a place that symbolizes something greater. And the God worshipers in the Bible are always dealing with the presence of this alternate city. Augustine, the great, um, one of the founders of Western society, and one of the early Christian uh, philosophers, 
described the world as the city of God and the city of man, and the city of man is Babylon, and the city of God are the people who are still under God's rule and reign instead of under Babylon's. This theme comes into even sharper focus in Egypt. Oh, well, of course, Babel, right? There's a judgment upon Babel. God confuses their languages and breaks it up. Then uh, Egypt. So in Egypt, there's actually this story where Egypt itself, this, this huge world power, encounters God's grace and a savior figure which comes out of the people of God. So this is a man named Joseph. Joseph is betrayed and sent to Egypt, but he becomes for Egypt and for Israel's people a savior figure. Actually, when you read the book of Genesis, it actually reads very similar as the entire Bible. So what I mean by that is God creates the world, he creates his people, they fall. There's a person that is rejected outside of God's people who then becomes a savior figure for his people and blesses the entire world. Joseph. It's almost like a mini entire Bible, the book of Genesis. You kind of see the story recycled over and over again. But, but here, the, the world is blessed by the people of God through Joseph, but then they forget what God has done. And they begin to oppress God's people, the very people who brought them this salvation. And they start to build their empire on the backs of God's people. And what does God do? He raises up a new Savior, and he declares that a day is coming, a day of deliverance, a day of judgment against the arrogance and the oppression. And Pharaoh of Egypt shakes his fist at God and the people that he chose, and the Lord's day comes, right? There's the day that they celebrate as the Passover when God hit, hits them with a final plague of destruction that breaks their backs, and they allow Israel to leave and to plunder them. And then Egypt begins to pursue them. They go through, um, the, the sea opens up, and then the sea swallows all their oppressors. It's a day our Jewish friends celebrate, even today, called the Passover, right? The Passover and then the deliverance from Egypt. It's, and they began to call that the day. And, and it was the day of the Lord. This is the day that God saved them in an incredible way. He brought miraculous signs, did impossible things, and saved them. Now, there were numerous other days after that, that in which God delivered Israel from other enemies, and, and they started to refer to these as the day, and they, and they connected them back to these other days of God's judgment and salvation. But then, um, in the book of Amos, a day of judgment is declared, and this time it's against Israel itself who, like Egypt, saw and experienced God's salvation, but then turned against God and kind of shook their fists at God. It's as surprising as Genesis 3, where the people who were created by God and looked at him turned their backs on him and said, we will know this information for, from ourselves. The people who had been delivered out of Egypt turned against God and said, no, we're not interested. And Amos says to them, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And then God says this, he says this to his people, to church people. I hate and despise your feasts, I take no delight in your assemblies. Even though you offer me offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I won't look on them. 
Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps I will not listen to, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so basically, Amos is saying, your hearts have turned from me. You should, you should be doing, don't think that just because you're my people, I won't judge you. And then nation after nation began to defeat Israel in human battle. Um, and, and these, they understood to be the day of the Lord against them. Right? And actually, literal Babylon was one of them, and Assyria. And Jesus was born during a time when God's people were, were understanding that they were still under judgment. Rome was ruling over them. And people began to believe that Jesus, who was born into this situation, was going to be used by God to judge Rome, that a new day of the Lord was coming when God would overthrow their oppressors. And people began to wonder if this powerful teacher, Jesus, was the one who was going to bring about the day of the Lord. And what they assumed that would mean was that Jesus was going to fight and, and like literally go to, go to war, raise up, raise up an army and defeat them just like they had been defeated because they saw that as a day of the Lord against them. But to the surprise of Jesus' closest followers, he sat them down to, guess what, a Passover meal hmm? that hearkened back to their most, one of their most profound days of the Lord. And as he sat them down to that meal, what did he do? Did he tell them, today is the day we take up our weapons, begin to prepare? No, he wrapped a towel around his waist, took their shoes off, and washed them like a servant. This is unexpected, right? He told them that he, his body, would be broken like the bread at the table. What does that mean? That his blood would be poured out like the wine at the table. He's associating this language with the day of the Lord, but in a surprising way, saying the judgments essentially are going to fall upon me. And of course, these disciples saw Jesus crucified on a Roman cross, and Jesus told them that their temple would be destroyed, but that he would rebuild it in three days, and that was very confusing. But his disciples all testify that three days after his death, he rose from the dead. But history also testifies that the Romans, about 40 years later, tore down their temple, and it's never been rebuilt again. And Jewish people view that as a judgment day. In a sense, the early Christians experienced the day of the Lord, a day of judgment that was twofold, where the judgment of God fell upon Jesus. And so you could receive Jesus and say, the day of the Lord that was supposed to come against me came against him. But then again, the day of the Lord came against God's people in one of the most profound ways it ever had far worse than under Babylon, where their temple, where they could be restored in relationship with God, was torn down, never to be rebuilt. It still has not been rebuilt. And you needed a temple. You needed a temple to be freed from your sin. So if you didn't have Jesus, if he wasn't the temple that was rebuilt in three days for you, how, how can you be free? But Christians who believe the day of the Lord's judgment came upon Jesus, God's son, have always also believed another day stands in the future, a day of judgment, when all people will stand before God. And you're either found in Jesus and the, the judgment that you deserve is upon him, um, or you're judged for what 
you deserve. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is speaking of the day of the Lord, but the concept to them came with all of that history behind it. It's really important to see all of that, that story. And, and I understand that's a lot to throw at you. Um, so go study it. Um, it I, I'm serious. I mean, I, I had to, uh, I, I went to seminary and I did study these things and I still was like, I, I had to go back in. I had to spend time in a, in a couple of books and watch some good videos and it, it takes time. But basically what I'm saying is the day of the Lord is a recurring theme that anticipates an ultimate day of the Lord. It's, it, also, it, it often describes the ultimate day of the Lord borrowing language from God's days of judgment in the past, like the curse of Genesis 3, the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, the exodus from Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, or the Roman occupation. The future day of the Lord is often described borrowing language from those so today, if you pick up a Bible and just are just learning to read it, which I know some of us are, and you, you know, and you don't understand its history or the genres of literature involved, it can be really tough to read something like 1 Thessalonians 5 and understand what it's saying. And it takes a lot of work to dig into that. Um, okay. So I went to churches that read this at surface level. That didn't, under, that didn't teach some of that background. And I only heard it as a future event when I was younger. And I used to have a nightmare um, where it would be very dark, almost like tornado-like, and this big suction thing came out of the sky. It was like a giant vacuum cleaner. And my friends and family were getting sucked up into it, which I took to be good. This was them going to heaven, I think. And it went, came over me, and it didn't suck me off. I know. And I was stuck on the earth, um, you know, like in the middle of Armageddon or something like that. I mean, uh, this was my dream. And I share this very long prologue because I think I've heard of other people having these kind of fears you know, whether it's dreams or fears of like, when judgment day comes, will I be left um, or will I be taken away? And I think that my dream was shaped by a misunderstanding of scripture, especially 1 Thessalonians 5. So long prologue, and now I want to dig just a little more into like what I think 1 Thessalonians 5 is trying to tell us. It's not saying everything, but what is it trying to tell us? It's saying, I think, a few things. Expect the unexpected sober up and build one another up. That's really what we should walk away with. So I'll unpack that. Expect the unexpected. Um, I mentioned last week that Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 is following the teaching of Jesus that's captured in Matthew 24. You can look at the two and they follow each other. So Jesus, um, in what's called the Olivet Discord, Discourse sorry, in Matthew 24, is telling his disciples and um, teaching them about his return and about things around the temple. I'll read you the beginning of it. Here's how it starts. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, so they're saying, look how beautiful the buildings are. He answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end 
of the age. So that's, Jesus is answering that question in Matthew 24. Paul is reteaching us what Jesus taught in that moment, okay? So first they asked him, when would this temple be destroyed? When will you return? Now we know that about 40 years later, the temple was destroyed. History furnishes us with that information. It was about 20 years after Paul wrote Thessalonians. And Jesus um, will refer, as he goes through this Olivet Discourse, it's long, but he will refer to images from the flood of Genesis that he'll, he'll say it'll be kind of like that um, to describe it, even though we know from history that it wasn't quite like the flood of Genesis. There was no flood waters, for example. There was no ark. There was no Noah. There were no a lot of things. But Jesus uses language from the flood of Genesis to describe what's coming. Remember I said the day of the Lord is described using language from the previous days of the Lord. It's a recurring theme. Jesus also refers to the prophet Daniel's words when Daniel was under captivity in Babylon. And he was speaking about the Babylonian captivity. Jesus uses language that Daniel used as well to talk about an abomination of desolation that they would see and expect. He also refers to seemingly universal spiritual issues like hypocrisy, and he talks about things that seem as if he's speaking about you know, ultimate judgment as well. And therefore, it becomes really difficult to tell if you read Matthew 24 or, or 1 Thessalonians 5, if Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD or the end of time as we know it. It's really hard to tell which one he's talking about. And most thoughtful commentators will say, and I've, I've read a lot of stuff on this, that he's probably talking about both simultaneously to some degree. It's kind of like, um, and I heard this, uh, a Bible Project video described this well. I was trying to think of like the, you know, our Tucson example. If I said, look at Mount Lemmon, you would look at the Santa Catalina Mountains, right? And you sort of see them all clumped up together and you can see Mount Lemmon behind, but you see other mountains in the foreground. And it's kind of like that. It's like the day of the Lord, when, when we say or read the day of the Lord, there's an ultimate one behind them all, but there's ones in front that might happen as well. And we don't really know how many of those there would be. How and when does God bring judgment? Many, many ways. Is there an ultimate one behind them all? Yes, there is. It's both. He, he could be speaking of both simultaneously. So when Paul follows Jesus, he's doing the same thing, right? So he... Paul says in the beginning of our text, now concerning times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. You're, you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. Was he referring to the Roman persecution in 70 AD under Nero and other Roman leaders? Now, Rome, their big thing, the Pax Romana, is they said peace and security. You're, you're pe everything. There's peace and you're safe. And Paul seems to be using that language. It, it would lend you to think he's talking about Rome. Um, in fact, I would say, yes, he is talking about what's going to happen under Rome. But could there be layers of this picture that will occur in a future judgment? Yes, there are. They could repeat to some degree. But it's important to, ex to examine the meaning of the language. Since Paul is referring to the gospel of Matthew that was talking about the destruction of the temple, most likely he is talking about the destruction of the temple 
as well. Here's what Jesus had said back on the Mount of Olives about times and hours. He said, concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. When two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding out at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know the day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Notice Jesus refers to the flood, a previous judgment. And when you read the coming of the Lord in the Bible, it means God is coming to to judge or to deliver. It doesn't need to mean an ultimate end time, by the way, because the Lord is described as coming, judging, delivering multiple times in the scriptures. So often when the, uh, when the day of the Lord, by the way, or when the coming of the Lord is described as in the flood, what the people experience is something that feels maybe more like a natural disaster or like a geopolitical conflict, okay? So when the, when the people, when the flood came, they didn't see God come out of heaven with a bucket and do this, right? Clouds came and it rained, but they believed God was the one bringing the judgment. When the people under the Babylonian captivity, you know, experienced the day of the Lord, they didn't experience like, you know, a bunch of angels flying out of the sky. They experienced like a foreign power sneaking up on them and, you know, hitting them with catapults. That's what they experienced. Now, to my nightmare, I had always heard that there was a time when the, the good people would be taken away. And here's a key moment to ask, let's, let's look at the, the concepts here and ask if that was right. That, te- that teaching, by the way, comes from this section from 1 Thessalonians 5, when Paul talks about a thief coming in the night. And then it's also like referring to Jesus when he talks about, you know, one will be left and one will be taken. I'll read it again. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding out at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Now, let us ask a question. Who was, taking, who was taken away due to God's judgment in the flood? Noah? No, he got in a boat, but he remained on a renewed and cleansed earth, actually a purified earth. He wasn't taken away. The evil was taken away, right? Um, so when Jesus compares these scenarios, one will be taken and one left, to the flood, what would we expect? Who's taken away? The one who's trusting in God, what the, in the way that God provided for salvation as Noah trusted with the ark? No, they wouldn't be taken away. They would remain. Darkness, evil, would be taken away. The wording leads to that as a natural conclusion. 
So what about a thief coming in in the night? What, what did Paul and Jesus mean by that? You know, well, here's the thing. Thieves don't tell you when they're coming, right? Have you ever, <laughs> that's a bold thief. There might be a few out there. I'm coming to take your car, you know? Um, and you know, more power to them. But most thieves by nature do not announce themselves. That's the parallel. It's not a kidnapping, you know? Like it's, it's not like somebody, the, the parallel is not like a thief, we're going to be taken away. Like somebody comes and goes, ha! Right? It's not quite that. It's the parallel is the thief doesn't tell you when they're coming. For God to come like a thief means he doesn't tell you and announce to you, hey, I'll come in judgment on, you know, March 3rd. That's when. Because why, why not? Well, you'd all behave yourselves, I suppose, right? Um, and so what it means is we shouldn't speculate about when God will ultimately judge or, you know, um, or bring about salvation. We shouldn't speculate about that. It's thief-like. You're not going to know. He's not going to tell you. So we're supposed to expect something. Um, and what we expect is that God will make wrongs right, that he'll take evil out of the world, that he'll bring a judgment that's actually beneficial for the world itself. We should expect that. We should live in the hope of that. Um, also, pregnancy was, uh, was in our scripture, right? The idea of pregnancy. What, what, is, what does this have to do with that? What is that teaching us? Well, in pregnancy, you do expect a child is coming, right? You do. You expect it. And, what, and is that the expectation is one that is good. You expect a good result. You hope for something very, very good, new life. But there's this moment in the middle, right, or toward the end, of course, where it's painful, and you don't get like a memo exactly when that will be, which is why you've got all these people rushing to hospitals, right? Like, ah, I got to go. Because you don't know when it's coming. That's the parallel there. Just like a birth, just like birth pains, you, you know something's coming, but you don't know exactly when, but at the end of it is something good. Elsewhere, Peter draws language, uh, the apostle Peter draws language from the, the Psalms, and he says, some, some accuse God of being slow in bringing about his salvation, but to him a day is like a thousand years. Time isn't his hang-up, it's ours. And we're not really invited to know timelines, but we tend to spend a lot of time thinking about it. If, if you're new to Christianity, you'll eventually notice this. There's a lot of us, and a lot of us on TV, that are trying to figure out when exactly this is going to occur. Um, if you're wondering when the world will end for religious or even just environmental reasons, um, you know, or if you've been hurt and, you're, and people are getting away with it and you're wondering when is God going to like judge them and deal with the evil in the world, the answer is he will, but he isn't going to tell you when and how. So what happens when we fixate on times and seasons? I think we get distracted from everything else that Jesus has called us to do. When we fixate on those who sinned against us and how they'll be accountable, we miss our call to follow Jesus. When we fixate on the end of the world and when it will come, we miss the everyday faithfulness that Jesus has called us to. At the end of Matthew 24, by the way, after his Olivet Discourse, he tells some parables, and the major theme is be a faithful servant. Do the basics, feed the hungry, welcome the stranger, visit the sick, visit the prisoner. Do the basics. 
So expect the unexpected. Expect God to judge ultimately and in the small things, but, do, but expect that he will not be telling you how or when. That's his business. Like a thief in that regard. Like a birth in that you expect something good after the pain and disruption. So the day of the Lord is a recurring theme. There's judgment and deliverance. Um, there's an ultimate day of restoration. We may experience other events with characteristics of the day of the Lord in our lifetime, but we aren't to predict how or when, okay? Sober up. If uh, It says here, if you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, um, but you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or the darkness. So let us not sleep as, as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. The word sleep here, if you were here last week, you heard us talking about sleep in regard to death. And this is a different word. It's a different Greek word, and it had a different connotation. This word for sleep in their culture was often a parallel for moral indifference. So sobriety um, in our day could mean, right, not being intoxicated or high, but it has a deeper meaning. Um, it means we're able to, if you're, if you're sober, you wouldn't not only, you know, it's not only about taking substances, it's about being able to react and respond appropriately, to be, to be aware and to be under control. And so it would be, in their day, we've got, you, you know, to be drunk would be to be morally indifferent. In our day, there is some similarity there. To be sober is to be aware and under control, which would include an understanding of who we are morally. Um, what some take Paul to be saying is to become very focused, to be sober would be to be very focused on when the end of the world will come, aware of every political event, speculating about every news story. In fact, that's the opposite of what he's saying. The reader of this letter would, would not have studied it like slow like us. They would have read it straight through, and they also would have read him saying that we're supposed to beforehand love one another, do our daily work, live a quiet, responsible life. And then they would have read immediately after what we'll talk about next week, that we're supposed to encourage one another to be productive and full of joy and to exercise thankfulness, okay? So, and, and research shows that trying to interpret the news leads, leads us to less focus on our own moral life or gratitude or love. It turns us inward, stokes our anxiety, and takes over our minds. It's addictive. It's actually drunkenness, not sobriety, to hyper-focus on these things. If the calling of Jesus is to be sober, to learn to love and work faithfully, to care about your own inner life and to seek to please God, then many of the ways we're trying to be awake in our culture may actually be leading us to be asleep. The idea of being a child of light or darkness is to have the characteristics of light and darkness. So here's a test you can simply employ. This is probably more the insider conversation. If you grew up in, in church and you wonder about um, what, what's next in redemptive history, ask this question. Does my approach to thinking about what's next in God's plan lead me to do what Jesus called me to do? To love one another, to not be anxious, to trust the Lord with all of our heart and all our ways, acknowledge him, to do your work quietly and faithfully, and to disciple people in the faith. Does it lead you to do that? It should. But if I'm honest, I think, and this is a very American thing that we've exported sadly, often our approaches to when Jesus returns turn us inward, make us self-focused, 
and alienate us from the very people we should be walking with. So be aware of this. Your version of trying to be awake might lead you to sleep. Your version of trying to be sober may actually intoxicate you. Okay? And how true that is of addicting vices. They present themselves as helpful until they turn on you. So expect the unexpected, sober up, and build one another up. It says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. I mean, put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. So here, um, in these words we'll close with, we see something so common within the Bible, but so lacking in our time. And I want to land on this idea. What's our responsibility to one another in the midst of all of this? In living lives that please God, in mourning with those who have, um, as those who have hope, in living in hope of Jesus' return and not in fear. And Paul reminds us of the trifecta of Christian living, faith, hope, and love. We are to be awake in that we focus on growing in these. We are to be sober in that we are focused on these things. And we can often read about this and think, okay, I need to work on my faith. Maybe I need to work on my faith. But Paul never says, you be sober. He always says, we and us. Here, very specifically, encourage one another, build one another up. When I'm talking with people who are preparing for marriage, as many of you have experienced, um, I'll refer to Larry Crabb, who has a principle that you minister to one another, not manipulate one another. And it's, it's a basic premise for life, for the Christian life. Manip manipulation says, what do I want and how do I treat you in order to get it? And it feels natural, but it's dark. It always leads to the breaking of community. The same is true of living as Christians. If the question we engage as Christians is, what do I want? What do I get out of this experience? What do I want to feel about today? Then at least we'll be disinvested and we'll give sparingly, or at worst, we'll suck each other dry. We'll use each other, discard each other when we're done, and we'll go into the world using and discarding people as well. But Paul here describes the personal experience like this. It's like a soldier armoring up, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of salvation. And then when that soldier goes to battle, they're not fighting for themselves. They're fighting for others, for shared sobriety, for shared living for Christ, encouraging one another, building one another up. Encouragement can be a hard calling, but it's for the good. Think about the word encouragement. It, it means to instill courage. And we encourage one another, we instill courage in one another when we remind people that God hasn't destined us for wrath, that's what's in our scripture, but for salvation. So stay dialed in, stay awake. Don't go down these rabbit holes. It's not good for you. Building one another up can include saying, hey, you're fixating on you know, justice or the end of the world. This isn't good for you. Redirect one another in love. Look to Jesus who died for you so that you can live for him with everyday faithfulness. 
you know, this can be end of the world stuff, but it can also just be day of the Lord stuff. And what I mean by that is there's so many ways that God brings judgment and justice and deliverance. Like he's the ultimate fulfillment, but he also fulfills us in the little things. So sometimes we can be, you know, worried about like, will God bring justice for me? Will God ever, you know, like bring the scales into balance for me? What about that? And we're in each other's lives to say yes, and you don't know how, and you don't know when. So walk with me, be faithful. Let's be faithful together. Um, An example uh, that I I wanted to share from our elders, Mike brought this one up. It, It can feel like a small thing, but it's not. Is for us, like we realized every time we got together and we prayed for you all as a church and we were doing things, all we, we were talking about just everything that was broken. Like it was, just, it's so easy to do, right? There's, a, there's always a list. There always is. We're, we're flawed. And so it was like, okay, this is going wrong in somebody's life and this is going, you know, and wow, we didn't get the sermon right last week, did we? And all, okay, uh, yeah. And, and it was like, wait a second. We, ne- we need to tell the good stories. We need to tell the, encourage- the ones that instill courage in one another. We need to tell the stories that remind us that God is at work. So we've started to try to like force ourselves to tell the story. And then you go, oh, there's a lot of those stories. And it actually instills courage. It's encouraging. And it sends you out into the world with hope instead of out into the world going like, wow, God, are you ever going to deliver us? We need that. We need to encourage each other in these practices of thankfulness and everyday faithfulness, cheering one another on in faith and steering each other out of sleep and stupor. And that's really why we worship every week. Um, I've said this before, but I think we forget the gospel about every seven days. I, I really do. I think about every seven days, we forget that there was a day of the Lord in which all the brokenness and all the pain and all the judgment fell upon Jesus and in which we were freed from it and freed from our need to control the narrative and that we can place our trust in him. So on that day that Jesus was in that upper room celebrating Passover and he said, look, God was faithful back then and I'm I'm gonna show you how he's gonna be faithful to you. And he takes the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he takes the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many And he prepared them to understand what would happen on a Roman cross, that he was about to take the judgment of God upon himself, though it is we who deserve it, so that in him we have nothing to fear when we think of the day of the Lord. Judgment has come upon Jesus that we might hope in the everyday, hope and live in everyday faithfulness, awake, ready, but unafraid and sent out with confidence. Because the judgment has come upon him and because he rose from the dead, that's an ultimate day of the Lord he points us back to. He, point, he says, look, I delivered my people from Egypt and I rose from the dead. What do you have to fear? So come to me, receive me, and be encouraged. And that's what we're doing here in worship. What we're going to do now is I'm just going to say a quick prayer for us. We're going to have two minutes of silence. And that two minutes is just to Reflect, and maybe, maybe it's a time to cast your cares upon him. Maybe it's a time to just thank him for his faithfulness. Um, or, or if there's any question, or honestly, if you're angry with God, God can handle that. He took, he took the judgment. He can handle your angry fear. So 
two minutes of time for you to pray, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. We're going to sing some songs during that time. People will line up. If you're, if you're able to say, I believe um, that Jesus took the uh, judgment of God in our place, um, and I want to live out of that, um, out of the, the hope that he gives, if you can say something like that, even just with a little bit of faith, you can come and receive him by faith. Um, normally, we would have uh, just a beautiful time of hanging out and having dinner. Uh, this evening is a members meeting for us, so that is for if you're exploring being a member of this church, um, or if you are one, um, you'll stick around for that. And otherwise, um, we recommend, let's see, what's, what's a good, good spot? I don't know. If there's a game on, maybe Bob Dobbs, Flores, if you want to spend a little more. Um, you know, El Beto makes a, a killer carne asada taco. So... Panda Express, if you want uh, to be a MSG'd. So, um, so I will pray and leave uh, two minutes of, of silence for you, and then we'll partake in worship in the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, uh, that was a lot of information for me to share. I feel tired, um, and I'm sure many of us um, are in the same boat, but I pray that you would take and apply whatever of that is helpful, and um, that you would... Give us a deeper faith in you. Ultimately, uh, Father, we pray that we would hope and trust in you, that we would see the beauty of this theme of the day of the Lord, that you do um, take justice seriously, that you don't um, let wrongs go unright, um, and that you ultimately were willing to bear the sting of death and judgment upon yourself to give us hope. And so as we approach uh, your table, as we remember that you are our new Passover lamb, um, that the judgment of God passes over, passes over us in you, that we would come to you with grateful hearts, um, that we would be thankful, and that we would be sent out into the world to live out everyday faithfulness, living out lives that show that we trust you deeply. So as we pray, guide us to give our hearts to you. In Jesus' name.